you're listening to Reba Radio, the podcast. From 18th to the 26th of November 2021, our annual inclusion festival took the form of a dedicated radio station broadcast live from the bookshop at the Reba's HQ in London, with me, Marsha Ramroop, the Director of Inclusion at the RIBA, hosting the discussions. Reba Radio, the podcast, is the speech-only content from that radio station, themed and edited for your easy consumption. We suggest you make your way systematically through all episodes from the intro to the end to help you effectively on your inclusion journey. We hope you enjoy it and find it useful and applicable. LGBTQ plus is an acronym which encompasses so many identities, so many experiences. And I have to say, I've often wondered why they're grouped together and they're bandied together. One of our guests described it to me as a coalition of sorts. Another explained there's a hierarchy of acceptance within it, all of which we'll delve into. And we're really fortunate to have with us Adam Nathaniel Furman and Joshua Mardell, Tab Sabutch Gardner and Christina Riley. And rather than me describing them, I'll let them do that themselves. So I'd like to start with you, Adam, if I may. Uh, How would you describe yourself and what is your relationship with the LGBTQ plus acronym? Uh, Hi, um, thanks for having, well, all of us on the show. Um, I'm an artist and designer from an architectural background. So I studied architecture and worked in architecture for almost a decade and then sort of moved out of it. Um, My relationship with the LGBTQIA plus uh, acronym is that um, I sort of float around between uh, a few of the letters within the acronym and have generally found quite a lot of uh, solace and kinship uh, kinship within um, various sort of overlapping areas of that um, coalition um, over the course of my lifetime and uh, have frankly been saved by it. I probably wouldn't be around if it wasn't for people that I found through networks in London, thanks to the um, uh, thanks to the queer community. Thank you for that. Um, Christina, uh, how would you describe yourself and what's your relationship with the acronym? Right, that's a huge question. Um, Okay, so uh, I'm Christina Riley. I'm a senior planner for a company called Quinn London. Uh, where we work, uh, we build uh, new well, new buildings. We work on heritage product projects in London, and also property projects in London. So it's a, a great uh, company to work for. Um, I do planning, so it's part of project management. Um, and uh, I've been in the construction industry now for getting on thirty years. Um, I transitioned about six years ago while working at Belfer Beatty. And uh, for me, that was obviously life changing. Um, but uh, basically, since, since then, I've been involved in LGBTQI plus activism in the workplace. Um, I was a co-founder of Building Equality, which is the LGBT plus network for the construction industry. And uh, last year, we uh, co-founded with some colleagues uh, Constructability, which is a disability Um, non-visible disabilities and neurodiversity network for the construction industry as well. So uh, quite a busy uh, activist and I've just uh, on the back of co-hosting, well, hosting the diversity stage at London Build. So, um, yeah, that's that's me. Thank you, Christina. Um, Josh, if I go, Joshua, if I can ask you, uh, how would you describe yourself and, and what's your relationship with the acronym? 
Yeah, well, Josh is absolutely fine. Um, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you very much. And I almost feel like singing over um, after the Bronski beat. I know, love uh, that, right? Talking. Um, but um, so, I mean, I, I'm I'm a cis man. Uh, my pronouns are he, him. I'm a gay man. So the G and the Q kind of speak for me. The Q having perhaps more fluidity, more more positive, um, perhaps part of the of the acronym. So I'm a Q as well, and I'm an architectural historian in the history of art department at the moment at the University of York. And really, I suppose my approach is informed by queerness as a kind of sensibility. Um, I'm interested in saving stories in, uh, and working on the marginalized and the forgotten and, and trying to validate or foreground areas that are missing from architectural histories. So in, in short, I'm sort of interested in recovering a wider range of experiences in the past and in so doing, extending architectural history to everyone who can benefit from it. And I'm sure we're going to talk about the book on queer spaces, but it fits into that sort of idea of, um, of, of recovery. So that's that's who I am. Thank you, Josh. Uh, yeah, we'll certainly be talking about that shortly. And, and joining me here in the studio's tabs, um, yeah, what, how would you describe yourself and what's your relationship with the acronym? Uh, yeah, hi, my name's Tabs. I identify as a butch lesbian. I'm a composer by trade, a musician and composer. I started working in pop music about oh, 10 years ago. Uh, about five years ago, I started a club night for lesbian, trans and non-binary people called Butch Please, which is at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern every month. And I'm also a gardening writer and I'm a gardener. Um, I started growing as a way to combat stress and anxiety and I'm really interested in the intersection of wellness and growing and accessibility to growing as well and gardening. Um, yeah, that's me. Thank you. And uh would you agree that this acronym is supposed to encompass anyone who's not cis-het, where cis means cisgender, which denotes or relates to a person whose sense of personal identity or gender corresponds with their birth sex, and het is short for heterosexual and denotes relates to someone who's attracted to what's traditionally described as the opposite sex? Would you, is, is it everybody who's not that? Uh, well, I don't like to think of the LGBTQI plus community as um that because you know i don't think we should be considered like the exception mm. to the rule i think you know we are who we are we are these people we're not everyone who's not straight and i think that that's not a very useful starting point i also think it can be quite interesting because loads of people that i know you know we don't i mean i certainly don't feel a huge connection to the lgbtqi acronym i understand why it's important but I think it is often an acronym which is used by straight people uh, and mainstream society to describe what is a hugely diverse and varied group of people. And we're not all the same. In fact, we're all very different. We come together often under similar um, ideas and we often campaign and, uh, you know, we come together under certain issues, of course, but a lot of the time we connect separately and we connect with people who have actually, you know, my, my lived experience as a butch lesbian is, is quite different to some other people, you know, to the experience of a white cis gay man. Very, very, very different. And I think it can become dangerous to see our experiences as the same. I think once we start to lose some of the fact that we're different and accepting those differences in each other, then we can run into some kind of problems. So I, I think whilst it's a useful term, it can also be quite problematic and it needs to be unpacked, I think. Well, let's do a bit of that unpacking. I mean, Christina, um, what's your view on, on, on you know, this grouping and, and bringing all these different identities and experiences together? 
think, um, you know, LGBT, it's important to recognise that LGB is about sexual orientation, uh, the T is about gender identity, uh, the PLAS is uh, often just shortens the acronym, but we often talk about intersex people, talk about queer people, queer identities, and people that are questioning their gender identity or sexuality. So, uh, I think it's really important to say that, and I'm always, I always like to actually, I prefer to actually use the words lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, uh, intersex, queer questioning, as opposed to the acronym, because I think, uh, you know, the identities can get lost within within the acronym. Well, that's certainly something that um, the racialized groups can identify with, you know, in the same way, I suppose, how, you know, black can mean so many things. Asian's a continent rather than a skin colour. You know, ethnic minority will actually people who are not white make up the global majority. So, you know, acronyms, would you say overall are quite problematic, um, Christina? Um, I think it's in some way it's good because it's, uh, you know, for a lot of people, you instantly know what or people think they know what LGBT plus means. But I mean, there's so much more to it, isn't there? And, and as you say, with like the BM, BAME uh, identities, you know, the, uh, you know, each uh, person within that identity and the intersectionality across the umbrella of LGBTQI plus, you know, everybody is different and, uh, you know, you can lose somebody's identity but you know somebody that might identify as queer you know if you just use lgbt as the acronym you're gonna you know miss out uh, somebody's identity you know so i think it is really important we you know we can use uh, the acronym but also it's really important to to actually talk about the individual identities and really pulling apart, you know, who, who is it we're really speaking to mm. and, and, and what is it we're trying to achieve by, by yeah. using the acronym, presumably. Um, Adam, if, if I can talk to you about your, your book, I mean, how did you come to the place where you felt you needed to write a book about queer spaces? Um, so Josh and I are co-editors um, of the book, and it's actually, um, <laughs> speaking of large and incommensurable coalitions, um, <laughs> it's, we've got over 50 writers, <laughs> so it's, uh, and over 100 spaces, so it's a kind of um, very broad range of, uh, of spaces, um, and the, that, that was done intentionally, um, so that we wouldn't have authorial control over, you know, totally defining what a queer space was, but rather it would come from a plurality of voices, a plurality of locations, uh, chronologies, and alternative histories. Um, <clears throat> so a kind of plural recovery of different histories from around the world. And I, I, it was very important, uh, I'm not, Josh, I'll let you say something, but it was very important for me coming from a, a very much a design background. I studied design in architecture school, you know, as, a, as many architects are dyslexic, uh, finding it very difficult to access uh, a lot of the theory um, around queerness and find a way of relating it to design practice uh, in education. Um, and having a kind of quite sort of accessible um, publication that talked about the kind of shared history of queer spaces and all the kind of diversity and richness um, in you know and genius and brilliance that that uh, comes with that wasn't really present and it, it would have been a very beneficial thing for myself and I think lots of other people in my generation to have had 
Um, and so it's sort of quite, it feels quite personal to create that now, um, sort of, I guess, a very visual, very accessible, but very, very broad and open. So not one authorial voice um, definition of queer spaces throughout history. Um, but Josh, Josh has an equally personal perspective on it. Um, yeah, so I agree with that. So that, that's absolutely right. The spaces in the book are trying to cater to very different groups within that what, what we like to call the queer coalition, all of which we think have a lot of validity, they have significance, they have beauty and plurality, and we're trying to give a sense of unpick and, and try and unpick that diversity within the acronym, um, which we do absolutely use in the title, which is Queer Spaces, an atlas of LGBTQIA plus um, places and stories. So I agree with that. But of course, you know, we've got so many spaces, but there was a great limit also in terms of what we can include for all of that um, diversity. There's sort of been a rather contingent nature to the process of putting it all together. And that's mostly to do with the sorts of connections that we we lacked in some places and we had quite strong networks in other places. Um, but for all that, we've tried to um, to represent as many as many parts of that acronym as we as we can, I suppose. And within those those letters, there's great diversity um, as well. Um, and so, although there have been absences, we've tried to use single examples to speak for broader phenomena. Um, but for me, it's, although there's increasingly more about designers, queer designers, it's also for me about architectural historians, you know, um, and, and what, 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 how we can reform what architectural history can do and how we can, through, through architectural history, how we can uncover, uncover uh, more of those stories. So that's what's kind of in it for me. I've just found that, you know, without a directly accessible history, it's very difficult to have um, a sort of sense of confidence and strength when presenting your ideas, which you feel maybe don't have a basis or people tell you don't have a basis or are superficial or are silly, but actually they're rooted in a very, very deep and, um, you know, not millennia, but sort of centuries old uh, series of strands of, of um, queer themes. Um, and that's something that we'd really, we're, we're really hoping to, to share with the book. Tabs, um, uh, Josh and uh, Adam were talking about uh, their Queer Spaces book, you know, the, the fact that having different spaces, being able to uh, be safe in, in those uh, has been a really crucial part and talking about the history of all of those things. You know, you yourself, you've created a night, uh, presumably for these reasons. What, what's the purpose behind it? And, and what should people in the built environment take away from understanding about that? Yeah, I mean, I think I've I've actually thought very deeply about what kind of space you can run a successful club night in um, for lesbian, trans and non-binary people. And I think because I've thought about it so much, I do think that's partly why it's been so successful. Um, I have in the main run, and I have tried other venues, but the, the best venue has been the Royal Vauxhall Tavern, which is an interesting space in itself. It is the only queer English heritage listed space in the UK. So it, it is very historic. It is very, um, has always been a space, a safe space um, for queer people. And there is, I think there is a palpable sense of history when you're in that space, for sure. I, you know, I, I feel like I can feel the, the, the queer people of the past. They're dancing around us on the dance floor, you know. And I think that gives a lot of strength and power to to people accessing that space. The other interesting thing about space is it's it's a circular building and it's it's in the round, which has been really interesting to me as someone running a club night because it means that I can see everything that's going on in the venue, but also everybody else can see everybody else. 
And I think that's quite interesting when you're talking about lesbian, trans, non-binary people who are not seen in other spaces, who come out to my space to be seen. And everybody can see everybody else, quite literally. And I think that really, really adds to the atmosphere and the sense of togetherness that I achieve at Butch Please. Uh, the other thing that's always been really important, obviously, is accessibility. And that is about managing the space. That is about me setting the tone for a welcoming atmosphere, making sure... You know, I wasn't really into doing a kind of Studio 54 vibe. You know, I, I don't think it's about who gets in and who doesn't, who's cool and who's not. You know, I did all that East London stuff a while ago. But uh, for me, it, the coolest kind of space is a kind of space which attracts all different kinds of people, um, different generations of people and encourages dialogue between those people. And for me, that happens in club spaces. It's, it's not often actually widely talked about. I think it's interesting that you've written this book because I, I sometimes struggle with the fact that club spaces and club club culture is not really considered like a a real thing it's kind of ephemeral it you know you go out and it it disappears into the ether and it just lives on in people's hearts really and maybe on Instagram you know but I, th but I think they are serious and important cultural places for queer people you know it's often been compared to going to church you know and it is places where you can it, Connect with people who experience the world the way you do and there is nothing more powerful and more important than that and so, you know, uh, if I can come to you actually, Adam, on this, that um, if architects are to consider, OK, how do we build an environment? How do we build a world? How do we build a society that is inclusive and sees these identities? You know, what would you say were the key things that architects needed to bear in mind? Yeah, I mean, I, I can't produce a design guide. Oh, go <laughs> so, on. So, uh, I've, got, I've got a very narrow and tiny, you know, sort of personal experience from my perspective. But um, one thing that I do feel is important, the profession looks at itself and deals with internal diversity. I think that for me anyway, that's that's a very, very important thing that's, that's not been uh, properly discussed. Um, the kind of how queerness is allowed to exist within the architectural profession at every level from education through to practice through to planning um, and how conversations about queerness and how it's uh, how it exists how it's represented and how it can have some kind of permanent presence in our urban realm beyond femoral and the the kind of celebratory for maybe one day during a pride march is is something that I think needs to be to be discussed because any kind of notion of or any sort of expression of queerness gets sort of uh, um, slow very, or very rapidly squashed out of you and very rarely goes through education, then through practice, through to planning. Very very rarely does anything get produced that is that reifies queerness or shows difference in the physical space of our city. Um, that and that's that's just sort of one narrow uh, sort of angle angle that uh, you know I guess I've lived yeah. <laughs> and and find very important that's not been dealt with very well. Christina uh, in in the built environment and you you're in construction mostly I think that's fair to say um yeah. you know speaking to Adam's point there about you know the, the being in that space and being in that sector and not really seeing or feeling that there's anyone else like you uh, what's that been like for you? Um, it's, well, for 30 years, it's most, most of those 30 years of my career, it's been a massive challenge. In fact, like the first 22 years of my career, I don't, I don't think I saw LGBTQI plus representation at all. 
uh, in the industry. Um, I came out in, in 2014 um, to my uh, to my HR director at the launch of uh, an LGBTQI network at Balfabeti. And uh, back then, I think that was the very first time I'd ever seen anything in, uh, in construction. Um, there were a couple of other networks. I think Arup had a network, um, but there's pretty much next to nothing. I think maybe Network Rail might have had a network, but uh, you know, they, you know, when you don't see anything at all, and you know you've lived, you know, for a lot of your your life as a trans person, and you have this inability to come out because culturally there's just no uh, visible representation. Um, often LGBTQI people would have been the butt of sort of banter and jokes. So, um, you know, I never felt I, I ever could come out. And so, uh, so as I say, when, they, when Balfour Beatty launched the LGBT network, for me, as soon as I saw the launch, the advertisement for the launch of the network, I just knew I was going to uh, attend the, the launch. And that was when I actually decided to come out to tra as trans to, to obviously work colleagues, but then my family, my children, um, friends and colleagues. So, uh, you know, it's life changing for me. And, and since then, you know, there have been so many LGBT networks in the construction sector and building equality, I think, has like over 60 organisations within the sector that are actually part of the, the organisation now. So it's, it's quite um, reassuring, I think, for a lot of LGBTQI people, but there's still so much to do around, you know, tier two uh, contractors. Uh, there's probably, you know, pretty much next to nothing in, in that sort of area of construction. So, you know, we've still got a huge uh, part of the industry that we have to um, actually help support LGBTQI people. Josh, um, when we were talking before um, uh, we came on air uh, a couple of weeks ago, you talked about how architectural history is a bit of a haven. Um, I mean, you know, in terms of what what sense do you do you feel finding these these you know I suppose psychological spaces within architecture for for safety um, still exists? Can, can can people who are, who are gay be open? Um, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, perhaps I'll also talk about the, the the night space thing a bit as well to link into that. But I think gays, there is something to be said and something needs to be written. There needs to be a lovely sort of um, book on queer architectural historians. But gays, and I am talking about gays at this moment, and I think it would be a bit more difficult to extend to other parts of, to other constituencies, if you like, seem to have found something of a refuge in architectural history. And I think a part of that was less perhaps a, a particular style, classicism and Gothic equally, but it was more an interest in the past, somehow going back you know, to, to the past to find belonging um, in a place where they don't feel that they're, perhaps they belonged. Um, and I can mention a name because he was openly gay, Roderick Gradedge, for example, um, although he said, don't call me gay, call me a pervert. But um, he was doing this stuff, um, this sort of historicist stuff, conserving or restoring puging interiors, designing Victorian pubs in the 1960s, even though he was at the most evangelically modernist school of them all, the Architectural Association. So I wonder if that's a queer journey. Um, uh, just just something perhaps to think about there 
Um, but I also, I suppose, wanted to say in terms of what, what architectural history can bring to this, um, you were talking about nightclubs. We do include the Royal Vauxhall Tavern. And interestingly, it was listed, I think, in 2015. And, it, and as you know, it hosted drag shows. It catered to sort of queer clientele, all, certainly since the 50s. But it's also strongly associated with the, with the Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens, which was obviously a terribly queer space for over a century. Um, but most queer spaces don't fulfill the requirements for heritage protection. So we're talking now about, you know, that, that question we were raising earlier about tangibility and intangibility. The structures of heritage preservation aren't really serving queer heritage very well, certainly not the parameters of statutory protection through listing. Um, they don't tend to recognize LGBTQ plus heritage as a criterion for listing, right? Um, and there was this prejudice and pride project offered um, staged by the National Trust in 2017 to mark the 50th anniversary um, of the Sexual Offences Act in 1967. And Michael Hall, who is editor of the Burlington magazine, was going to write a whole book on queering the National Trust. But I think the National Trust actually scrapped the idea. Um, but essentially, it was talking about how it was a misconception that the people who handed over their houses to the organisation were just sort of indigent aristocrats, right? They were also aesthete bachelors who wanted to secure the long-term preservation of the interiors of the collections that they had. Um, so I think, you know, it's important to remember, just, just, I'm sorry if I'm talking too much, but the listing of something is based on nothing else at the moment of other, of, of other than a building's demonstrable special historic or architectural significance. And that significance part is what's debatable um, and contested. And it's often very, very difficult to make a case that queer spaces um, meet such criteria. So sorry, I'm not sure if I answered your question. But. Well, no, I think it's really important that if we're talking about, you know, uh, and to architects and, and those in the built environment, that they understand, you know, the breadth and depth of what they need to be thinking about when yeah. they're considering um, this area of, of LGBTQ plus uh, lives and experience in our society. And Christina, you know, speaking to that point about, you know, safety and spaces, um, would you say that there there is something, well, let me ask you rather than putting words in your mouth, what would you say is the main thing that pe people need to be thinking about when, they, when it comes to this particular area of lived experience? Uh, you're absolutely right and um, you know for me we, we talked last week as well didn't we about one thing I often talk about passionately passionately is about linking identity and safety and you know within the construction sector and the built environment sector and you know safety can can be all sorts of things in, in terms of identities you know it you know it can be you know about the people around us you know we LGBTQI people are often can be physically attacked just walking around the built environment um, you know so there's a whole uh, national culture around uh, homophobia transphobia um, lesbophobia and, and all the other phobias so I think it's really important to, to recognize that but then there's also personal safety as well and obviously the construction industry is very much focused on safety as a number one issue and if you can't be yourself in the workplace and uh, you know due to perhaps bullying or inappropriate banter or a culture where you can't come out and you you know you're you're keeping the secrecy of your true self uh, inside you then for me that really affects um you know who you are as a person it affects your ability to concentrate it affects your mental health it can affect your ability to do your job 
And if you're somebody that's at the front line of construction, you know, you're working out on construction sites, you, you could be working on scaffolding or around big machinery, then if, you know, that inappropriate banter, that bullying, that, um, or even that where you're not felt that you can be yourself. And so your, your mind space is quite focused on, you know, does somebody know that I'm trans? Does has somebody, you know, can somebody see some makeup that I may have left on my face, for example? You know, how am I going to be treated? Is somebody going to, you know, um, you know, take the Mickey out of me? And for me, that that was how I felt, I suppose, about eight or nine years ago before I came out. And that really affected my ability to do my job. It affected my concentration in the workplace. And uh, it, it also affected my physical health with panic attacks. And for, for 10 years, I actually suffered 10, 10 years of panic attacks, chronic mm. anxiety um, in the workplace uh, because of I was hiding my true authentic self. So... You know, these things have real consequences to, to who we are as LGBT people. And I think that's why it's really important. Tabs, if I can come to you, you know, who who gets to control these spaces, do you think? Because it's all well and good, you know, us having a, a mixture of people. And, you know, even if we're, we get to this point where it's more inclusive, we have a more diverse and more open acceptance, as Christina was talking about before before the tune there, who, who really controls them? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question and it's something I think about a lot because there are, to my knowledge, no lesbian-owned and run venues in London anymore, as in lots of other cities as well around the world now. And this is a really big issue. I... Um, it's wonderful to run Butch Please at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern, but it is white gay male owned, like almost all the other spaces. And, uh, I, you know, there is a sense that we kind of infiltrate and transform that space into our own space for those few hours. And, and then we leave again. Um, and I think that, as I was saying earlier, contributes to this sense that our space is ephemeral, it's 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 just lost it's it's just a space in transition you know it's it, it never really it never really connects into culture and and into history and so i think i think a lot about how how i can infiltrate more spaces how how i can take over these spaces so that we can connect and have space because to be honest people are not handing it to us and we were unable to have our own spaces and controlling space is a really important part of being able to create a safe space that welcomes the kind of people you want to come and connect with each other. Christina, would you say that there is a hierarchy of acceptance within that acronym LGBTQ+? Um, it's, a, it's a good question. I think there, there is, there is a, well, there's a hierarchy in diversity and inclusion anyway, I think. And... Um, you know, I think in some ways, you know, being, I mean, I'm not a gay uh, man or woman, you know, but I think a lot of the gay issues were, were tackled in the workplace maybe 10 years ago. Um, the last two years, we've seen greater inclusion around lesbian identities, but I mean, we've still got a huge long way to go. Bisexual identities, very hardly talked about 
um, within the industry. I think there's so much work to be done around that. Trans, trans identities for like the last three or four years, you know, there's been a lot of work, but I mean, we're seeing quite a big backlash as trans people at the moment, particularly in the, the British media, um, but globally as well. You know, massive challenges for, for transgender identities and queer people. So, um, yeah, we've just got a huge, huge way to go on, on all of them. And for me, we need to, you know, we need to talk about all of these identities equally. And even like even intersex identities, you know, again, it's another area of, of uh, diversity and inclusion that is hardly ever talked about. So I think, uh, you know, we have just got so much to do in the construction industry. Um, you know, and it goes beyond LGBT in terms of intersectionality with uh, gender and uh, disability and ethnicity. Adam, if I can ask you, actually, um, you know, that people listening to this, you know, may well say, well, what does it matter? You know, do, do you get that a lot? You know, what does it matter that we talk about this in, in, in architecture and the built environment? What would you say to them? Yeah, I mean, all you have to do is look at the Instagram comments whenever I post a rap about the subject. Mm. <laughs> People get quite angry. Um, they say, you know, why does everything have to be about sex? That tends to be the, <laughs> like... And I guess the point the thing, is the response it's, that... it's not about sex, is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, that's sort of like, what you sort of have to explain to people uh, every time. Um I, I guess it's what's nice about, you know, the initiative that, that you're doing here at the Reba is it frames it within a broad about how important it is in a liberal society for people to understand different perspectives you know it helps um, you um, if you're ever doing anything with any other people if you're running a company if you're producing creating public space you just make everything work better um, <clears throat> you can be more efficient uh, you can relate to people better um, you can exist in the contemporary employment market better. Um, I, I think there's a lot of upsides to it from the perspective of maybe the kind of people who'd be listening to this or people who might be employing or being colleagues with, um, you know, probably now a small majority of people who do align with um, all of the identities you'll be speaking about over, over the, um, the calls in the coming days. Um, yeah, I just think it's highly, highly beneficial for everyone involved. Josh, if I can ask you to, to respond, if you can, to um, uh, Tabs's point about ownership and how, how important do you think it is that there's a diversity of ownership uh, of those spaces, um, you know, uh, within that, that LGBTQ plus acronym of those spaces? And, 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 and in the research of your book, what have you discovered about the difference of ownership amongst them? Yeah, that's a different, more difficult one. I mean, I think that I'm, I'm not sure if I can speak for specific examples about ownership. It's more that queer people want to own their stories, I suppose, and not, you know, and, and own their history. And indeed, to have a history, it matters that queer people have a history. Um, so I think, I think, you know, that that's important. And this idea that it's not all about sex i mean that that actually that sort of thing comes from within the coalition itself um a case in point in my case is i'm i'm part of an oral history project at the moment for the british library interviewing old architectural historians in their 70s and 80s who are in same-sex relationships and some of those are gay um figures and they give me hell for bringing up sexuality as though it's you know it, it, it's intrusive so they're trying to own their their own sort of sexual narrative i suppose saying that the personal is not relevant to the work um so it can be it can be quite difficult um 
to do. But I think in short, we need models and um, that's the main thing. I think if you were to approach an architecture, an architect or indeed an architectural educator and say, can you actually count a series of queer spaces on your hand? They would find difficulty in doing that. That hasn't really answered your question, but. Well, no, I think I think it's important that um, we, you know, start to pull apart and start to have these conversations and start to get people thinking about, uh, you know, what these experiences are and and what it means for our colleagues, what it means for our organisations, what it means for our firms, what it means for our practices. And and Tabs, um, you know, if you could give the built environment and and, and uh, architecture sector you know, something to take away about what they should be thinking about, how they should be thinking, um, the maybe something that they um, needs to challenge. What, what would that be? I think, uh, quite simply, to think about how other people experience space than the kind of people maps that they hang around with. Perhaps, you know, the, the, how people experience the world in a way that they can't even imagine. And perhaps they could try and imagine. And then they might get close to be able to create and imagine uh, spaces that are inclusive of different kinds of people. I might, dare I say, not just imagine. <laughs> Maybe go along to a space that you would recommend to yeah. see see what that's, that means, what that likes, what that feels Absolutely. like. Absolutely, Absolutely. And so apart from, you know, your your own night, you, you know, where else in the country could people really experience these kinds of nights or, you know, not even just nights as well, days? Because presumably, <laughs> you know, you're not just uh, gay during or, or, or lesbian during the night. You just, <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> or it's a 24-hour identity. Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, in terms of um, lesbian and trans non-binary non, um, non spaces, I mean... I mean, there's. I mean, I, I recently one of the themes I did for the club night was was sports teams, and you know, it turned out actually there were a huge diversity of different sports teams, unbeknownst to me, um, who took over football pitches and climbing centres and swimming pools to um, exercise together. That was one thing. That's a daytime thing. You know, it's. I understand for everybody, it's not all about going out and drinking um but i mean in, ter in terms of club spaces there aren't very many i mean that, that to my knowledge there isn't another one in the uk for example so the, of the size of butch please um which is you know a shame actually <laughs> yeah in itself is is um is significant uh, christina if you had to give uh, the the sector a takeaway what what would it be I think for me, um, diversity and inclusion is such a huge topic and often we focus on gender and ethnicity, but actually it's all the intersectionalities of all diversity. At the end of the day, we're, we're all different and, um, you know, we should be, you know, making sure we include intersex people, making sure we speak up for trans people that are really suffering at the moment in terms of the British media, um, you know, covering bisexual identities which is hardly talked about but then also as i said earlier you know bringing in disability which is again it's one of the last areas of diversity and inclusion that is really being embraced within the industry uh, in terms of support and visibility um, but also you know we've got ethnicity we have so much work to be done around you know black lives matter after the george floyd tragedy last year 
you know, there's, there's just so much to do, you know, the gender pay gap as well, you know, women have still got a huge battle. So this is why, you know, this, you know, the Reba radio series is so important. And, uh, you know, hopefully that gives people some ideas about, you know, where we need to go moving forward. Thanks so much to Tabs, Butch Gardner, Adam Nathaniel Furman, Joshua Mardell and Christina Riley. You're listening to Reba Radio, real inclusive, brilliant action.